named Madeline. I'm happy 13 years to there's a solution group. That's fantastic. I've been to this, I think it was a workshop probably five or six years ago. It's certainly a little bit bigger now. Um, Madeline would not really give me a time to stop. Um, she finally did, but I think there was a part in the book that says, you know, it says something along the lines that, you know, an alcoholic who's found a solution and is properly armed with facts about himself can win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in just a few hours. <laughs> and until that happens, little or nothing can be accomplished. So thank you, Madeline, for giving me the next few hours to win your confidence. Um, I uh, want to thank, you know, and seriously, uh, Tony gave me his watch. That's good. That's good for all of you. And, uh, and Robert, I was eating dinner with both of them and a couple other people before, and Robert's like, I love coming to these things and not being the speaker, like eating meetings. And I was like, I kind of get that. Um, you eat a lot and you kind of get full of hope no one falls asleep. I did, actually. I was started a, myself in a committee. We started a group at Mecklenburg County Work Release, and I was a speaker there one time and had about 20 people in the first row, had uh, about four people, and every one of them was out cold. <laughs> in the back row, there was one guy, and he was snoring. And usually, when you know, my experience is when you speak in a meeting, whether they like it or not, people will thank you for the talk. But uh, the only guy that thanked me at this Mecklenburg County work release was uh, the person who was snoring. <laughs> so apparently, it was some of the best sleep he had. Um, and I'm going to try to tell my story. Uh, I think what we are now, Alcoholics Anonymous, is a fellowship of stories. And you know, I love all kinds of stories. I love listening to people speak and tell their stories. And some people I know get sober really young and then they, you know, do these great things, go to school and you know, have these wonderful careers. And you know, some people drink and they like, and I still don't get this, they drink their way through graduate school and um, they get married, have kids and you know, build all this stuff. And then, you know, alcoholism kind of takes over and every, they lose everything and they become a has-been. So my story is neither one of those. My story is more of being a never-was-been. I just kind of started at the bottom and just skidded for a long time. Um, my sobriety date, I think, is, I didn't say it, so my sobriety date is May 23rd, 2005. Uh, I live in Charlotte. I have a home group in Charlotte. My home group is called the Third Tradition Group. We meet Monday night. Uh, at 7.30, it's a big book and tradition study. Our group anniversary is in May, and uh, we started in May of 2003. So, you know, hopefully this May will celebrate 20 years. Um, and I'm not going to try and spend too much time in my prenatal experience or anything like that. But uh, I do come, I came from my, a family, I think it produces as many alcoholics as just about any other family, and it's really a pretty good one. Um, my mother is an alcoholic. She's a self-proclaimed alcoholic. She probably started drinking when she was 40. Uh, she got sober when she was 54, and I was about 15 years old. Um, so, and then I've experienced this, and I hear a lot that people will say, you know, a head full of AA and a belly full of liquor doesn't mix. I have experienced that. My drinking career had began when my mom got sober, and I can tell you this for sure, that her head full of AA and my belly full of liquor did not mix. <laughs> we did not, like, we started butting heads early on. Um, she thought I should be in AA. She was newly sober. I was like, no way. That would never happen to me. I was the last one to know. I, um, <clears throat> the state of California, when I was sitting in jail a couple times. God, sounds like you might be a good candidate for Alcoholics Anonymous. Have you ever heard of it? There's a hospital, uh, it's now called um, Atrium, but at the time it was called Carolina's Medical Center. They suggested I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Family members, friends, kind of thought I might go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was talking to uh, someone before the meeting that there's a group in Charlotte, it was my mother's home group called Myers Park. Um, and I, I came back and visited, and at this time I had been court-ordered to treatment centers, just one at that time. I had had you know, some consequences due to drinking and alcoholism, and I went to this, 
uh, holiday party that the group had. And, you know, they had heard about me from my mother. And they were all giving me, like, phone numbers and stuff like that, saying I should call them. I'm like, whoa, you've got the wrong guy. I'm definitely not an alcoholic. I was the last one to know. Um, and so my drinking career began, I guess it's about average. Listen to a lot of stories. I was 12. I was in, what, junior high school, so up until elementary school. That was my peak. I did very well in elementary school. Um, I made A's and some B's, and then I was at a small school, and I was already curious about drinking and some things like that. Um, I uh, was now at what we call junior high school. I was like a small fish in a bigger pond, and I was scared to death of people. Um, No, it didn't look like that. It kind of looked like just I just kept to myself, but I had a lot of fear, a lot of self-centered fear. And the first drink that I, well, the first time I ever got drunk, I think I had some sips of beer and things like that prior, but the first time I ever got drunk, I'd gone into my parents' liquor cabinet, and, you know, any character defect I have is not because of drinking. Every character defect I have, I had before I took my first drink, including stealing, including dishonesty. And I went into their liquor cabinet, and I just took a little bit of every bottle of liquor that they had, and just took a little bit, um, whether it was gin, I can't even remember them all, gin, vodka, tequila, bourbon, and I just put it in a mason jar, filled it the majority of the way up. I assume I put some Coca-Cola or some orange juice or something in there, I don't remember, and I took it to school. And I had a friend who did basically the same thing, and up until then, I was at the school and I was just tense all the time. My fence were clenched up, my shoulders were probably shrugged, and I just was really, you know, uncomfortable. I was just tense all the time. And I remember sitting in the back of a science class with a teacher who wasn't very hands-on, and I took a gulp or a swig of that, you know, and I knew it was going to taste bad, but it was far worse than anything I could have <laughs> was terrible. It almost came right back up. I did every, took everything I could to hold it down. But how many ever seconds after that, it was almost like it was my first spiritual experience. I mean, my shoulders just relaxed. My fists just, uh, my arms, I could just feel it in, in all my extremities. I, I never felt a part of, I didn't feel a part of school. I didn't feel a part of my family. I just didn't feel a part of. I don't know why, but I just didn't, or a part I felt apart from, excuse me. And when after I drank, all of a sudden I felt a part of. And, uh, and that's what alcohol did for me. I, um, you know, I played sports. I've been, you know, pretty good at sports. Uh, the steps have a way of getting me a little bit more honest. I used to tell you I probably could have turned pro or something like that. That's far from the truth. Um, but I was pretty good in sports. And I just started just quitting sports one by one. I quit baseball. And I quit football. And I quit basketball, all the sports I played, those good grades I made in elementary school and the seventh grade started to slip. Uh, that year, the year I started drinking, I made the first C I ever made. Um, the next year I made the first D I ever made. Uh, the next year I made the first F I ever made and then I had to go to summer school and I really hated that. And the last semester I was in high school, I had five Fs and one C. The C was in weight training. I didn't get credit for it because I'd missed more than nine times. I'd gotten to the point where I was occasionally going to school. I was really going to like a friend had his parents had a lake house and we would just go out there and drink. And uh, it was my first sponsor. I've had two. Um, he kind of did the math for me. He was like, so five F's and a C, your grade point average was 0.25. And he was kind of like, well, your blood alcohol content and your grade point not very far apart. It's probably right in that. Um, I, uh, now, I did get into listening to music. Now, I know some people, when they say they got into music, that means they were doing something musically, musically inclined. They played piano, they sang, they played guitar. I didn't do any of that. I just listened to it. But when I drank, I could crank up a stereo, and I could just jam out with the best of them. And that's what I do. I drink in my room or in um, when I turned 16, I, my parents had an extra car I could use. I would just sit out in the car after they'd gone to bed, and I would just drink and just turn up the stereo and just jam out. And uh, so that's kind of what I was doing. I, um, 
you know, kind of the music I was listening to, the, some of the books I read about certain musicians. Uh, it seemed like it was all on the West Coast. So I really kind of had this desire to go out to the West Coast and go out to California. Uh, I had a friend who had a VW van, like a 1967 or something like that, VW van. And we embarked on this journey to go out to the San Francisco Bay Area. And the van broke down in near a town called Morgantown, West Virginia. <laughs> um, so we're there. Now, this guy had this book. I could not have done this. He had this book. It was called The Idiot's Guide to Fixing VW Vans. And he was smart enough, or I don't think, like I said, I couldn't have done it, but he was able to figure out, he took a bungee cord, and the engine was in the back, went all the way out the driver's window, all the way to the back, and we took turns driving, shifting gears with a bungee cord going out, and we made it all the way out to San Francisco, California. Well, that was it. I was now homeless in San Francisco, California. I didn't really think of myself as homeless. I considered myself free. My version of freedom <laughs> was doing what I wanted, when I wanted. You know, without regards to really anyone. Um, I didn't think, it's not that I wanted to hurt people, I just didn't have the ability to think about anyone but myself. I think for me, alcoholism is this illness that doesn't allow me to put myself in anyone else's shoes. It doesn't allow me to have compassion for anyone else. It doesn't allow me to consider anyone else's feelings. It just says, feed me, feed me. And I just couldn't think about anyone but myself. And uh, my parents would have probably done whatever they could. They would help me go back to school. Uh, I didn't have that kind of willingness. They would probably help me get a job or set me up to get a job. I didn't have that kind of willingness. Um, I just. I just wanted to just hang out and, and drink. Um, I will say this, uh, drugs are a part of my history. They're not gonna be a big part of my story tonight, but I'm really grateful for our traditions. To me, I think the traditions are about, in the third tradition, they're all about inclusion. Um, they're about widening the doors of AA um, within the confines of alcoholism so wide that my narrow mind can't even comprehend really how wide that door is. Because when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I came, you know, a few times, um, you know, I didn't know if I should be a member of AA. I was like, you know, I've, I've got some, you know, backgrounds not great. I've done things other than drinking, and I'm really grateful that the people surround me when I was willing to get sober, they were like, look, we don't care about what you've done but let's talk about what happens when you drink. And a lot of people say the big book has a lot of answers in it, and I think that's absolutely true. It has uh, directions in it, but I think you can turn a lot of those statements into questions too. And I'm really grateful that people gave me the time that I needed to answer those questions for myself and diagnose whether I have alcoholism or not. Because up until then, um, there were times, even at that early of an age, I kind of knew I had a problem drinking. But when I say I had a problem drinking, I, I knew I had a problem once I started drinking. I didn't use the word allergy or phenomenon of crap, craving or anything like that, but I knew once I started drinking, I couldn't stop. I couldn't control the amount I take. What I had no idea about was this obsession. Um, and it wasn't until I started to identify by listening to you. I don't think I can get sober off any of your experiences, but your experiences can sure help me identify with my own. And... Uh, I heard a guy say one time that his, basically his alcoholism began where the bottle ended. I had no idea that even though I knew alcoholism affected me when I'm drinking, I had no idea that it affected me when I'm not drinking. And, you know, I quit many times. I've quit forever, hundreds and hundreds of times, literally. And I'm good for about three days. First day, I'm on fire. I'm not drinking. What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to the show, or I'm watching the game, or whatever, and I'm not drinking. And the second day, and then I'll probably start want to exercise and working out, getting some shape. And the second day, I'm kind of sore. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right, I'm sore, but I'm going to make it. And the third day, <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Um, so without some kind of spiritual solution or a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have defense against the first drink. It's just not effective at all. I just cannot go more than three days, basically, without drinking. And that was kind of my story. But anyways, back to California. I, um, 
I, I would see a lot of concerts. Robert knows the kind of concerts. We have similar tastes in music. Um, I was going to see a lot of concerts and I was just living, hanging out in Haight-Ashbury. I was eating at a soup kitchen on Waller Street a lot because they would feed you for free. And that's just the way I was living. Now after about five or six years, I'm into my 20s now. And that way of life started to get old. You know, I was, it was starting to wear on me. I was tired of being on the street. And, uh, but I didn't think I needed a spiritual solution. I was sure that I just needed a financial solution. I just, you know, like, you know, and I've been to meetings where I, I know people have said good things to me, and I know they've said, that, you know, things like, oh, I took the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual awakening, and my wife, you know, the obsession to drink has been removed, and uh, I have a life that's meaningful and has purpose today. And, you know, when I would probably hear that, I thought I had answers, and it's just so hard for me to start any kind of spiritual journey if I think I have all the answers. So when I I'm, when I'm, I'm think I have all the answers, my ears are shut. Now, my mouth might be running, but I can't hear anyone that, anything that anyone has to say. So I, um, I just am sure that I just need, like, money and a car. And um, I started getting involved in some activity that wasn't legal um, to try and get those things. And I did actually get some of those things. Money did start to come my way. And I was able to buy part of a bar that had live music uh, in a town called Santa Cruz, California, um, which right now, I guess there's bomb cyclones where I used to live is being just decimated by rain and mudslides right now. I bought part of a bar. When I say part of a bar, 5%. So I was like a very minority owner, but I wouldn't have told you that. I, I owned a bar. I mean, I was, you didn't have to hear the 5% part. Um, but I could put someone on the guest list. I could tell the bartender to give him or her a drink. And that was, you know, that felt like my peak to me. And I was just on top of the world. Um, and uh, but the thing is there was unmanageability was still just littered throughout my life not just the unmanageability that precedes the first drink but i just couldn't keep it together and i started to have some legal consequences um i got pulled over drinking and driving and uh i was still in santa cruz and it looked like i was going to get into some trouble and have to do some time in jail not any ridiculously long period of time but some time in jail and i was able to afford a lawyer and that lawyer's like, I think I have a technicality here, and I think we can win a jury trial. So we went to a jury trial, and uh, I lied completely under oath at that jury trial. And you know, during this time, I wouldn't say I was praying, but I was negotiating with God that if you can get me out of this, I will do this. And I was going to quit drinking. And I really, really meant it. The lawyer that I had, we won that jury trial, and I think there's 12 people on a jury, if I remember correctly. Three of them came up to me and approached me after the trial, and they're like, if I were you, I think I would quit drinking. I was like, oh, yeah. I'm done. I will never drink again. That night, I was drunk in a bar called The Silver Bullet in Santa Cruz, California. I just, I had no defense. I had and um, so then I'm like sure that the problem isn't me. I'm in the wrong town. So I just got to get out of Santa Cruz, California. So I went down to Southern California in a small town in a place called Orange County. And there, within like two days, I got in almost identical trouble that I had just been in. Still had some resources. This time the lawyer was like, you know, we gotta, we gotta get a deal. And they came and they offered me what some might say is a really good deal. I don't think this is in our literature, at least I'm not aware of it being in our literature, but through the judge said, look, if you go to 90 AA meetings, I, I probably could have been other 12 step meetings, but 90 meetings in 90 days, and then you stay out of trouble for a year and a half, we'll dismiss the two charges that you have. Seems like a good deal looking back, but I'm thinking, 90 AA meetings in 90 days. That's like a meeting every day <laughs> for three months. I mean, that's three long, miserable months. I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I 
cannot do that. And he's like, really? I was like, I can't do it. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous seemed really lame to me. I knew people got sober young, and I, just, I felt sorry for them. Like, and, uh, so they, but he came back with another offer, and this was going to became my first of three treatment centers. This one was outpatient. It was court-ordered, but it wasn't every day. It was twice a week, I think, for like you know, two and a half or three hours, like Tuesday and Thursday. And I was like, oh, okay, it's not every day. I can drink on the days off. I can work through this. And... Uh, so I agreed, I agreed to that. I pled guilty and I showed up to this, you know, outpatient treatment center. I think of everyone that was there in my group, 15 of us, I don't remember exactly. One person was there voluntarily, everyone else was court ordered. And, uh, and they gave me a sheet and I'm like, well, what's this? And they're like, oh, you got to go to 15 AA meetings. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. I mean, I felt so done wrong. Like, <laughs> So I went to, I didn't forge the sheet, I went to the same noon meeting in a town called Lake Forest, California. I went to it every day for three weeks. I got the sheet signed. And again, I'm sure people tried to reach out to me. I'm sure people tried to help me. But I don't want to hear or I can't hear what anyone has to say. Because I think I'm getting a bad break. I'm playing the victim role. I've been done wrong. My experience is that when I'm a victim, I don't stay sober. Um, and then, uh, so I completed, I did complete that treatment center, and then what happened was I didn't see the light, but I felt the heat. <laughs> and uh, I am not going to stay out of trouble for a year and a half. There's no way. So that's, and I had burned bridges. I was now out of money, so um, I ended up moving back to North Carolina. And I, um, I told people I was going to help my parents. It couldn't have been farther from the truth. I had no resources. So I moved in with my parents. And my parents were living in a retirement home. So I was the only person under the age of like 65 or whatever the age was living in this retirement home with them. And uh, I can tell you as soon as I entered my parents' life, my mother, I'll even say her, so my mother was probably 19 or 20 years sober when I moved back. She had not had any alcohol in her system in close to 20 years. And as soon as I entered her life on any kind of regular basis, she was suffering as greatly from alcoholism as she ever had. Um, and that was because of my actions. You know, I was a thief of the highest order. I was one that was not honest with the cash register, but I think my, the way I stole my worst form of thievery was I stole from the people that loved me the most. I stole their peace of mind, I stole their serenity. I stole their right to be happy. And I, um, I would even like I didn't have a car. I would say, I'm you know, can I borrow the car? I'm just going to the store. And I really thought I was just going to the store, but I go to the store and take a drink, and then I can't, <laughs> I can't get back. <laughs> I, I keep going, and then I would come back, and I'd be so, I guess, humiliated or ashamed, whatever the right word is, that I wouldn't want to face them. So I'd leave the car like near where they could see it and I would disappear. Now they did uh, give me one more chance and they said, you can come back and stay. We are going out of town for the weekend. So we're gonna trust you. You can, we want you to do just a few things. We want you to water the plants. We want you to feed the dog and we want you to keep the place clean. And uh, so my mom was over. My dad, best I can tell, was a moderate drinker. No problem with alcohol. So he still had a liquor cabinet that was hardly ever touched. And as soon as they left, I just bust open that liquor cabinet. It was almost like when I was 12 again. I was just drinking everything, little bits. Alcohol wasn't working in the same way that it had. I didn't feel a part of anymore. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't get buzzed or drunk, but it wasn't giving me the same sense of freedom that it once had. And I, like I said, I did have some experience with some drugs. or So I thought, well... My dad was a surgeon, too. It's like, he's got to have some pills or something. So I opened his medicine cabinet. They had two, and they had, like, this dual vanity bathroom. There's nothing in there. I'm like, Jesus, this, I can't believe it. The guy's a surgeon. He should have something in here. Um, but I opened my mother's medicine cabinet. And in there, there was a bottle. Um, 
And it had a red sticker on it. I didn't know what it was, but it had a red sticker that said, do not mix with alcohol. And for me, that's like, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> we are going to give it a go. And when I give something a go, I don't just take one or two. I took them all. And I started chasing it with bourbon, I think, or something. And uh, I wasn't a notorious blackout drinker. I had some where I'm like, you know, I'm in Charlotte at 11 p.m. and at 8 a.m. and I'm in Rock Hill and driving and like, whoa, you know, like, this was not one of those. I, I remember with a couch I passed out on, I came to on the couch, but I didn't feel well. And I'm not going to get into, you know, symptoms kind of thing. But uh, I was like, ah, i got to figure out what I took. And so they had a computer. I didn't know much about computers, but I knew you could do an internet search. So I just took that bottle and just typed in the exact word that was on that bottle. And what came up was I had taken an estrogen supplement <laughs> for women who had gone through menopause. So I took my mother's month supply of her menopause medication. And, um, they were like cigarettes. They had Oriental rugs. I had burned those because I had passed out. Um, the place was a mess. It wasn't cleaner than when they left. I didn't fulfill any of the requirements that they asked me to do. And they came back a little early, so I had no time to like even try and get it together. And I was just busted. And I was like, that's it. And they, um, I couldn't stay there anymore. So now I'm homeless again. So now, I don't know if anyone knows Charlotte or not, maybe one or two in this room do. I was now on the east side of Charlotte, near what used to be a place called Eastland Mall, and I was 37. So homeless at 19, felt free. Homeless at 37, not so much. Um, and I was uh, living in this abandoned house. The power was illegally hooked up, so finally Duke Power came and took a bucket truck and disconnected it high up with the poles. We couldn't hook up the power anymore. There was a church ministry feeding the homeless six nights a week, every night but Sunday. They gave out sleeping bags, and that's how I was living. And I was you know, stealing food out of stores. Um, and I, there was a big group, I was telling someone about it, there's, there used to be a big group in Charlotte, still is pretty big, not as big as it once was since the pandemic. So I told my story to this group for the first time, and uh, this guy came up to me and I shared I'd been homeless in this room, and he's like, I remember you. And uh, you were at that house, I was there, and his nickname was the Colonel. I was like, oh yeah, I didn't recognize him. And he's like, well, I just want you to know that if you can get sober, I think I can too. <laughs> and, um, so I saw him a couple years later. I was over in another neighboring town, and there he was. And uh, then about seven, ten years later, I can't remember exactly, there was this kid at this group I go to. It used to be Jerry's home group when he lived in Charlotte. I spoke at that group, and this young guy came up to me. He's like, man. When I was in middle school, we were feeding you. I remember you. If you can get sober, I can too. And, uh, and I saw a couple of those promises that are in the ninth step that one, that no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. And another one is that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I mean, to me, those are just like mind-altering promises. Um, you know, somehow we, you know, a lot of us anyways, have this really dark past. When we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, we somehow put it in God's hands and it becomes our greatest asset. It's just amazing to me. Um, anyways, like I said, I still was under the, I guess, delusion that, and I still can get this way that like, if I could just, like somebody just won a really big lottery, I think. Man, if I could hit that thing, all my problems would be solved. And the only problem with that thinking is, if money's gonna solve all my problems, then I have no need for God. Um, but uh, I still thought I just, need, I just need a car and I need an apartment. I need to get off the street and then all my problems would be solved. And I bought, when I had some illegal proceeds, I bought a piece of land in California. It was really big in Northern California. My whole intent was to do this agricultural project. <laughs> I was way too drunk to ever even begin it. 
And I, but I made a bunch of advance payments on this land, but it started to fall behind. I was about to get foreclosed on. A realtor was able to get in contact with me. He's like, I can sell that land for you. I'm like, well, do it. Please do it. So he sold the land. He took his commission. The back taxes were paid. What was owed on the land? Everything was paid. But what was left over is I had some money. I had what I considered enough money to solve the problems that I claimed I had. I could get off the street. I could get um, a... Uh, a car, I could do a lot of the things, and I'm going to quit drinking, and this time I meant it. Like I said, I've quit forever many times. But before I quit drinking, I'm going to go out with a bang. I'm going to have the last weekend, you know, and you know, kind of go out on my terms. So I checked into, I want to say, a fine establishment. It was called the Budget Inn. Um, and at that time, this is in 2000, January of 2005, maybe February, something like that, of 2005. This hotel, motel, had a daily rate that was $45 a night. Or you could pay a weekly rate for $135 a week. Now, about five years ago, I was on a panel at a detox in Charlotte, and I shared this, and someone raised their hand. And they're like, that's only 29 bucks a night now. So this is the kind of hotel that about 10 to 15 years later went down in cost. Um, but they, um, but I'm like, I'm only gonna be here two nights. So two nights and I'm gone. I, I knew two nights, I can do math. That's 90 bucks, that's not 135. I don't need to pay three nights. I don't need to pay a weekly rate. I'm gonna be gone in two nights. And that was my intent. And, um, I started drinking, you know, I still, you know, I thought drinking was going to be like 1982 or something like that, where I was going to do, my social drinking lasted about 45 seconds. So I, there was no social drinking, I was just drinking by myself, I was hardly eating, I would eat just very little, and um, came around after the two nights, I hadn't slept well. I was like, gosh, I just need to pay the daily rate one more day so I can just kind of recharge. And then I'm going to work on getting a car and an apartment tomorrow. So I'm just going to pay the daily rate one more, one more time. It's no big deal. I somehow got the second win and I started drinking again. So the next day came around, God, overshot the mark. But here, I'm, I'm going to quit tomorrow. So just one more day in the daily rate. This is no... No big, you know, speed bump in my, my plans. Next day came around, same thing. All right, this is the last day forever. I'm not going to do this anymore. Next day came around. All right, I swear I'm not going to live this anyway, this way anymore starting tomorrow. The next day came around. I kept paying the daily rate at that hotel for about three and a half months. Um, it didn't feel like I was powerless over alcohol. I really thought that I just kept changing my mind. Um, until then, like, you know, I thought the solution to alcoholism was not drinking. I mean, it's clearly, if I've got a drinking problem, not drinking is the solution. And I don't think anywhere in our literature does it say, hey, just don't drink. What it says is we have a spiritual awakening. Um, to me, though, the steps don't look like a good idea. I think they're right there. You know, the second steps and third steps, that's weird. Those are weird. I once went to a meeting and someone took me and I looked on the wall, saw the third step, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm in a cult. I've got to get out of here. So I went and sat in my car and waited for him. Um, the fourth step, that's like homework. That's, I don't, I, I don't like school. The fifth step is really, really embarrassing. I don't want to do that. Six and seven is getting weird again. And nine is expensive and I don't want to do that. So I, I just don't have any need to do the 12 steps. Um, so it just it still didn't look like a good idea. And uh, so I checked in, so after I was out of money, I checked into a, like a recovery house, not quite a halfway house, but kind of the deal was you're not supposed to drink. I couldn't fulfill that um, requirement, so I got kicked out pretty quickly, and I'm back on the street again. And what happened was this time, I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I couldn't have told you this at the time, but looking back, what happened was my ears had opened up. 
and my mouth quit running. And I was able to hear like the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I always thought I was different, you don't understand. And um, you know, I thought I was getting bad breaks. I thought people were doing me wrong. I had resentments that I didn't really even know about. And I shared in a meeting one time, an early meeting, that you know, that life's not fair. That was one of my resentments on my fourth step, that the principle that life's not fair, I thought it should be. And this woman, I shared this in one of my early meetings, and this woman came up to me and she was like, honey, the fair comes once a year and you missed it. And I was like, I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, to me it was so deep. That's about as deep as I get right there. And uh, I was like, whoa, man, you know. And then, uh, you know, I, I, there was a guy who had seen me in and out, and he was greeting people at this meeting, and I asked him to be my sponsor. I was like, you know, I, I was able to admit that, you know, I could maybe sling a couple slogans at you, but if you look at my results, I don't know anything about staying sober. So I asked him to sponsor me, and he said, all right, pray about it. I'm going to pray about it, and we're going to meet tomorrow, and we're going to talk about this. I was like, oh, man. If, if there is a God or this guy has contact with God, God is going to be like, man, this guy is bad news. You've got to stay away from Greg. He's... And I was like, thought I was doomed. And when we met, I think it was the next day, what he said to me, it was very attractive. He didn't come from a spiritual hilltop at all. He said, I just want you to know that I'm no better than you are. I'm no worse than you are either. I'm another alcoholic trying to stay sober one day at a time. And we can do together what neither one of us has been able to do by ourselves. And that just really, really, like, it just kind of hooked me. We started embarking on taking the 12 steps out of the big book, which I think are these incredibly simple actions that if I practice them and I make them a way of life, I'm going to get results that I've never gotten before. And I know this... Madeline talked about this being a group, and I, I think there is a big difference between a meeting and a group. Um, and he got me involved in a group. And he signed me up. Now, this, I, I've heard the word voluntold. He signed me up to make coffee. Like, he didn't ask me to consult me. And I really thought he should have. Um, he signed me up to make coffee. And I was like, man, I see what's I'm going to be raking his leaves. I'm going to be washing his car. I see what's coming. But I was, you know, willing to give it a shot. So I showed up the next time that meeting met. And he was there. I'm really grateful. The two sponsors I've had have not been tell-me sponsors. They've been show-me sponsors. And he led by example. And like most things in Alcoholics Anonymous, we did it together. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, the, uh, I started to make amends. Um, like I said, I did a lot of stealing. I basically sold my integrity and I sold it a nickel and a dime at a time. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've gotten to pay it back a nickel and a dime at a time. I started going up and down stores all over town. A lot of them were chains of stores and I'd go in there and they'd be like, it'd be a manager, it wasn't personal to him. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I mean, let's just ring up groceries and you pay for them and we'll put them back over here and just don't take them out of there. And so I started doing a lot of stuff like that. I made, you know, there were some amends. Sometimes I've gone over um, lists with guys I sponsor and they'll go over there and I said, listen, I'm like, God, I did that same thing and I haven't made amends for it. So I've gotten to, um, I've gotten to go into some businesses where, well, not just business, I go into some charities because if that business I sold from is no longer business, I was instructed to pick a charity um, I got to choose it, but I would go in there and I just clarify that, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm like this really great guy. I'm doing this because I've stolen from another business that's no longer, and I've got to put back in the universe what I've taken out. So, um, and then my dad, um, I made amends to both my parents separately. It's not going to happen now. I feel confident of that. A couple times I've talked about my dad, I've gotten really choked up. I was at this event in Myrtle Beach. And I was with a guy sponsor, and my lips started quivering. I got really, really choked up. And I left, and I was like, gosh, I got really choked up during that talk. 
and I don't like doing that at all. And he's like, yeah, man, I think it was all that estrogen you took. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, but my dad, um, he ended up getting cancer. And I was, um, I was not quite two years sober, so this was a little while ago. And I got to, I made amends to him. And I got to be there for about his, like, from the time he was diagnosed with cancer, he probably had it well before that. But from the time he was diagnosed with cancer until when he passed away, it was like a month or maybe not even quite that. It was a pretty quick time. But I got to be there and kind of be, you know, a contributing part of the family. I didn't say this, but I had very little contact with my family for about five years. And I'd always, you know, like want to call them or want to reach out to them. And then this little problem, a little word, which is such a big problem for me, it's called ego. I'd be like, you know what? They could have treated you better. They could have done more for you. You don't need to call them. But I got to be there, um, and the last day that he was alive, you know, he was in hospice, he was, his eyes weren't open, he wasn't talking or anything like that. But we were there around um, as a family, a lot of people would come in town, um, and we knew it was, it was like, you know, on the last couple days. And it was this one day that was a particularly long day, and it turned out to be his last day, and everyone was, um, at about 6 o'clock, oh, we got to go get something to eat. But one person should stay here just in case. And I was like, you know what, that's going to be me. You guys go eat. And um, when they all left, I grabbed my dad's hand and I told him, because, you know, I think what resentment does is totally warp my perception of reality. It blinds me from the truth. And this is a guy who worked all the time and tried to provide and did provide for his family a lot of opportunities he didn't have. What I saw was the guy wasn't there. And I was like... And I think forgiveness, and I'm not sure this is the best example of forgiveness because I always think I was more warped, but I think forgiveness is like this wall coming down and I was able to see things that I couldn't see before. And I was like, you know, I told him that, you know, I could see what a really good daddy was now. And if it was time for him to go, that was okay. And then I was going to be okay. And he squeezed my hand right there. And it was a really powerful moment for me, and everyone came back, and he, and he did some similar things for a couple other family members as well. And, um, and he passed away that night. And like I said, I had a two-year anniversary not long after that. And my mother would give me a birthday card on my sober anniversary every bit. Maybe it meant more to her than my actual birthday, I'm not sure. But and this was a particularly <laughs> long one. And in it, she said, I just want you to know that your dad died in peace, knowing that you're going to be okay. And what a blessing you are in my life. And um, when I made amends to her, you know, I saw this. I, I think I owe you about this much money, and this is how much I want to pay you back. And she got choked up. I got choked up. And she said the most important thing is if you're just there when we need you. And you know, I've started to be a whole lot better son. My mother. Um, so she, um, she's 94 right now. When she was 90. We had a big rented, my sister has a house in Charleston. We also rented another house in Charleston. We had a big like birthday for her, for her 90th birthday for like a week. And we were sitting, it was my nephew who was a young adult, myself and my mother, we were sitting on the beach and one of those parasailing things went by. And uh, she looked up at it and she's like, you know what? I've always wanted to do that, and I never have. And it was my nephew. He was like, well, do you, are you ready? And she looks up, she's like, you know what? I think I am. And uh, so they wanted us to call and find out. And I'm like, there's no way. You're 90. I'm, I'm not saying this, but I'm thinking this. But I'm like, I'll tell you what. We will just say that we tried. And just to rule this out right now. So my brother and I called the number and we're kind of on the side of like, she's 90 years old. We can't do this, right? And they're like, no problem. We took someone in a wheelchair up yesterday. <laughs> so she picked six of us, because that's how I think many would fit on the boat. She picked six of us. I was one of them. And we spent a half a day or whatever parasailing. And we all took turns going up there, and they were dipping her feet in the water. and. She was up there 800 and I think something feet, and they filmed it, and um, that's the kind of stuff I just about missed. If it wasn't for this fellowship, I would have just about missed it. Um, she has, lives in a retirement home still, a more assisted level, 
and uh, they had a little newsletter in her retirement home, and she made the cover of that month's newsletter, and they had a picture of her uh, with uh, up in a parasailing thing, and they don't know if she's an A or anything like that, they called it High as a Kite. And, um, and I'll tell you, so there were, I think, 17 people at this, um, this birthday weekend. I think of the 17, if I remember correctly, five of them were children. So, not set them aside, every one of those adults came up to me at some point over the course of that time period, and they thanked me. And they thanked me for how I was now contributing to the family. And I don't know if they know this, I think they might, or some of them might. They aren't really thanking me. They're thanking Alcoholics Anonymous. Because left to my own devices, I, that is not my DNA. The only thing I was not obsessed about when I came to AA was what I could do for you. Um, <laughs> that's the only thing so I um, you know my mother's had a rough go of it lately she just a couple months ago she's uh, had to move into a much more assisted level about a year not quite a year and a half ago I think September of not I guess we're in 2023 September of 2021 I think it was anyways she broke her femur bone and she said it was the worst pain she's ever been in. She said she'd rather give birth to five more children than have to go through that. Um, and uh, so we took turns. I took her, you know, I was sitting in the hospital with her and I happened to be reading this article. Um, it was by this woman named Margaret Mead. I have no idea who that was, but I guess this is well-known anthropologist. And they asked her in this article, like, what, what is like one of the most important things, you know, artifacts or things in history that, in your opinion, that was found. And you would think, or I would think, you know, it'd be like a fish hook or a clay pot or some tool that really changed the game. And when she said it was a healed femur bone. Because a healed femur bone, it, you know, in, in prehistoric, or you know, in a lot older times, you know, if you broke your femur, you're done. <laughs> you, you can't, you're a prey to animals, you're, you can't get food, you're done. So a healed femur bone is the first time that people came together or a sign that people came to take care of one another. And, you know, we were talking about that, you know, because she's an A, like I said, you know, that's a lot like Alcox Anonymous. And um, I, um, so, I mean, the whole principle to me of like trying to put someone else before me or just to not think so much about myself. I I thought I needed to feel better about myself or I need to have more self-esteem. Um, I think really my solution, I needed to quit thinking so much about myself. I was in Memphis, Tennessee about five, no, I think about seven years ago, I can't remember. And somebody kind of hit me with that analogy or that saying, I don't think it's an analogy, that saying that is um, the glass half empty or is the glass half full. And I've heard that many times and just always equated that with like optimism and pessimism. And they're like, no, 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 no. You need to look at it like this. Like, who's doing the drinking and who's doing the pouring? And if, you know, I live my life like I'm doing the drinking, that means I'm just always taking. And I'm always just trying to figure out what I can get and just how it's going to work for me. And if I live by that principle, the glass is always half um, empty. Because whatever I have, you know, yeah, I could have more. If I live my life like I'm doing the porn, like what I can add, what I can pack into the stream of life, uh, my experience is the glass as well. It's usually pretty full. It's definitely at least half full. And sometimes, many times, it's overflowing. And just that little shift in perception has totally changed, like, everything. You know, like, um, if I think about myself for 10 or 20 minutes straight, I mean, people are doing me wrong. The world is a dark place. I'm my boss, oh my God, there's there's something going on. Um, However, if I can start to think about someone else and how it might affect them or you just turn my thoughts to them, the world opens up. It's just like it totally changes everything. The, um, I think I got a few minutes. I, um, so I started to get involved and, you know, different kinds of service work. Though actually, this group, and a lot of people at this group have had a big, a big impact. Um, you know, I got sponsored into going into treatment centers, which I still do, um, and I love doing that. But I saw a flyer for a, a, 
corrections conference. And I asked my sponsor, I was like, maybe what about you going to corrections? And he's like, absolutely. So I started filling out applications. And, and then I went to my first Freedom from Bondage, which was in 2006. And I just saw, you know, the kind of enthusiasm that I hadn't quite seen before. And I don't mean like it wasn't enthusiasm like the AA pom-poms, but it was just like real meaningful and real like, like how can we be of service and how can we be effective? And uh, it just really kind of started to change my sobriety and I'm still involved in that today. I go to a correctional facility pretty much every Wednesday night. I go to a group called the One Day at a Time group that meets inside the walls of Anson Correctional Center. And we started back there at the last week of April, so however long ago that is, um, six, seven, eight months ago. And it's one of my favorite meetings of the week that I go to. I, um, I do want to thank Natalie again um, for having me. Uh, a couple of people asked me if I needed a prayer before. I did pray. You know, I think when you speak at any meeting, you start to learn to speak, you know, pray in bathrooms. So I've gotten pretty good at praying inside of bathrooms. I can close a stall. And, you know, my prayers are really, really simple. It's pretty much God, you know, your words, your message, my voice. Um, you know, I did not, like I said, my prayers before this weren't really probably, when I say before this, before sobriety, weren't really what we call prayers. They were more like trying to negotiate. Like, you know, if you do this, I'll do this. Um, so today I, I try and pray and I meditate. Sometimes for me, meditation is a euphemism for thinking about myself. Um, but I try and do it every day. And I can tell you that uh, pretty much every day I wake up, and I think this is in the daily reflection. I think that's where I first saw it. But always the first thing I do is when I wake up, I pretty much thank God for waking me up that I'm alive. The other thing I do is I thank God um, that I'm sober. And the third thing is I thank God that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous isn't the, the only thing in my life, but it's definitely the best thing in my life because without it, all the other things wouldn't be possible. So I want to thank Madeline again, and again, happy anniversary to the There is a Solution group. Um, I will say this um, before I close. The, um, and this kind of hit me in my home group on Monday night. You know, I've had a lot of stuff. I felt like, you know, like work's coming at me. Uh, some stuff with my mom I felt like has been coming at me. Some other stuff, you know, personal stuff's coming at me. I've got a hey, service position that I feel like is coming at me hard, something every day. And it kind of hit me on Monday night that, wow, these problems aren't coming at me, they're coming from me. So I need, you know, I generally love going to AA meetings. Um, I look forward to going to AA meetings. But I think by me suiting up and showing up here, it's still kind of like an inside cry. That, you know what? I'm not cured of alcoholism. I need you guys. I need this program. I need these steps. I need this fellowship every bit as much today as I did the day I first walked in here. So I uh, thank you all for allowing me to be part of the Lyra Solution Group. Thank <laughs> you.